Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, going through this Superman Begins series as I am, it's been more of an eye-opener than I was expecting. You see, I thought I knew these stories backwards and forwards, but what you realize as you hash your way th through all of these things is how much these stories have in common, where they, where they significantly diverge, and really, I guess, what the goals of each story were. Or what the goals of each story what whatever. Through it all, Superman is Superman is Superman. Tr true. But the character is a lot more flexible than people want to acknowledge. Now, even I'm on the record saying that Superman is limited in the sense that you always have to portray him as an honest, inherently good, morally unimpeachable, and pretty much upright guy. And there's a sense in which that's kind of true, but it tends to overlook just how dynamic that type of portrayal still makes him. It's also interesting how most of the writers of these comics all attempted to modernize Superman, and yet they obviously all had very different impressions of what that meant. Anyway. It's, it's just been interesting. That's all I'm saying. Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. everybody, welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. I'm your humble host, Trentus Magnus. As I said at the top of this show, I've been going through a sort of mini-series called Superman Begins, where I review and discuss significant Superman origin stories. This is all part of the big lead-up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, and maybe also a reminder to people that there is such a thing as a comic book. And... I mean, these movies have to come from somewhere, right? Now, this time around, I'm talking about John Byrne's Man of Steel miniseries. This is a pretty momentous series for me, actually, because John Byrne pretty much informed how I thought of Superman in comics for a lot of years. I want to start off by saying that this is not, is not, an attempt to step on what the people at From Crisis to Crisis are doing. That wonderful podcast is intended to be an, a sort of an A to Z index of all things post-crisis Superman. All I'm covering here is Man of Steel. 
the intent of this series is to discuss various Superman or origin stories in comics. And any series like that is fundamentally incomplete without dealing with Man of Steel. So, to Michael and Jeffrey, I hope they understand this isn't an attempt to compete with them. Anyhow, a lot of you probably know this, so I won't dwell on it too much, but basically DC had come to decide that Superman needed a facelift. Basically is what it come down to. He needed some something or someone to, in, to reinvigorate him, his world, his mythos, his supporting cast, and everything else. So, DC solicited several pitches over time, but the one that eventually won out was a proposal by John Byrne. Now, in subsequent years, Byrne has gone on the record saying, and I think he, this is something he's even said again and again, he was willing to work within the established continuity. It was DC Comics who insisted upon a Scorched Earth reboot for Superman. And DC liked his proposal, and so they hired Byrne to do the reboot. Now, I want to stress that because it was fashionable for a lot of years, and to a degree it remains so now, to bash on John Byrne for insisting that Superman be rebooted as a condition precedent for coming onto the books. The implication there is that Byrne is some type of out-of-control egomaniac. Now, I have no idea if Byrne needs or needed a lesson in humility, but he has no reason to lie about this, um, to lie about being the one who insisted on a hard reboot when... That's something that would be very easy for the powers that be, or were, at DC, to prove wrong, if they needed to. And so far, nobody has argued that he's lying. At least that I'm aware of, and that tells me a lot right there. So, in any case, into the summaries we go. Man of Steel, number 1 through 6, was written and drawn by John Byrne, inked by Dick Giordano's art studio lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Tom Ziuko. The story was published in six issues from July to September 1986. Each issue focuses on a different time in the early years of Superman's career. In telling the story, Byrne drew from available media depictions of Superman for inspiration, including the Fleischer Studio cartoons, and George Reeves' portrayal in the 1950s television series, Adventures of Superman. Issue number one. The cover to the first issue touted the story as Where the Legend Begins. It chronicles the origin of Superman, from his flight from Krypton to his arrival on Earth, where he's discovered by his adoptive parents, Jonathan and Martha Kent. The, st the story fast-forwards to a high school football game, after which Jonathan takes the now-teenaged Clark for a ride in their car. By this time, Clark has developed many of his powers in that Yellow Sun environment, beginning in order with resistance to injury, great strength, sensory powers, and finally, flight. Jonathan reveals to Clark the truth that he, Clark, was never their biological son, and that he was found from a crashed spaceship. 
The revelation causes Clark to decide to use his powers for the greater good. For the next few years during his studies in universities, he has been saving lives and averting disasters in secret. While in Metropolis, which he has made his home base of operations three years previous, he is exposed to the public when he prevents the crash of an experimental space plane. He meets Lois Lane for the first time and both felt a connection to each other. Before they could react to the connection, however, a mob surrounds them. Clark is unable to deal with the sudden attention and so flies away. In order to preserve Clark's secret identity, Jonathan comes up with the idea of a superhero identity, such as those used in the 1940s. Clark adopts a costume created by Martha and uses the name he was given in the news, Superman. In the issue, the planet Krypton is portrayed as a cold and emotionally sterile planet, an idea Byrne borrowed from the 1978 film Superman. Kal-El was, was not an infant sent through Krypton to Earth. Rather, his fetus was placed in a birthing matrix, equipped with a rocket engine and Jarrell's experimental warp drive, with Kal-El gestating during the trip to Earth. Once the rocket landed, Kal-El was fully born on Earth. This also made him born an American, a plot point that would be used in Armageddon 2001, a DC Comics storyline which explored possible futures one of which featured Superman becoming President of the United States. The issue showed that Clark's abilities developed gradually in the Yellow Sun environment, starting with resistance to injury, with his ability to fly being the last to emerge. It took until his late teen years for all of his powers to develop, thus, Clark only adopted the Superman identity in adulthood and never was Superboy. The Kents secretly adopted Clark and passed him off as their biological son, Prior to finding Clark, Martha Kent had a history of failed pregnancies. Friends and relatives assumed that they kept Martha's pregnancy, quote-unquote, a secret in fear of losing another child. A blizzard that closed off Smallville for weeks also helped in the Kent's alibi. In some pre-crisis depictions, the Kent surrendered baby Kal-El to an orphanage before having a change of heart and legally adopting him as their own. While the pre-crisis Superman's costume was invulnerable, as a result of being made from the blankets and the rocket that brought him to Earth, the post-crisis Superman's costume was made of ordinary material. But while the cape often became ripped and torn, or even completely destroyed on occasion, for, for dramatic effect, the rest of the costume was usually left untouched. It was later explained that the post-crisis Superman's body generated an invisible aura that surrounded him and contributed to his invulnerability. Objects held close to him, such as his costume, were protected from harm. His cape, meanwhile, could easily sustain damage in battle. The Superman S shield is an uh, original design by Clark and Jonathan. Byrne made some adjustments to Superman's costume. While keeping every classic element, he significantly increased the size of the S shield so that it almost entirely covered the chest. The cape is also made longer and larger. It's flowing in the air made, made to look more dramatic. Byrne made a small change to his original plans for the issue because of real-world events. During Superman's public debut, he, he was originally going to save a landing space sh shuttle. After the space shuttle Challenger disaster, however, the Constitution was changed to, quote, an experimental space plane, unquote. 
In Brian Singer's 2006 film, Superman Returns, one can see this scenario played out, save for a single difference. It happens to, a, to an average airplane. Issue 2. The next issue is set shortly after the first, <clears throat> where Superman, in his costume, have debuted in Metropolis. Daily Planet editor Perry White assigns Lois Lane to get an interview with Superman. Meanwhile, Superman is all over Metropolis rescuing citizens and foiling bank robberies. After a series of failed attempts to interview Superman, Lois decides to take a gamble and plunges her car into the harbor. Superman arrives and takes her home. She finally has the scoop on Superman, only to find out she was beaten to the headline by newly hired reporter Clark Kent. Lois Lane was written as an aggressive reporter and person from the start and never expressed a desire to find out Superman's secret identity, and indeed never seemed to consider that Superman might have an alter ego. She was also responsible for coming up with the name Superman, as she does in versions of the character in other media such as Superman and, later, Superman the Animated Series. Lane was also given a reddish-brown head of hair instead of black. Issue 3. Superman and Batman meet each other for the first time after Superman had heard of a vigilante operating in Gotham City. Batman is on the trail of the criminal known as Magpie when he is interrupted by Superman who regards him as an outlaw. Rather than risk capture, Batman informs Superman that should the latter make any attempts to come near him, a signal will be activated that will trigger a bomb and kill an innocent person somewhere in the city. The two are forced to work together and eventually capture Magpie. In the end, Batman reveals to Superman that the endangered person is Batman himself. Superman departs and cautions Batman against crossing any further lines. Batman admits to himself of a respect for Superman's innate goodness and wonders if, in a different reality, they could have been friends. Superman's relationship with Batman, which was friendly in the pre-crisis era, became much more tentative as each disagreed with each other's methods and attitudes. An allusion is made to their pre-crisis friendship with Batman's pondering at the end of the story. Batman mentions that he had read Superman's debut in the Daily Planet News report eight months ago. Issue 4. Lois and Clark are guests at a party to be held on Lex Luthor's luxury ocean liner. Upon arriving, they are entertained by Luthor in his, in his private chamber on the ship. When Luthor insinuates his desire of Lois, the latter is offended, having some knowledge of Luthor's past. Lois refuses to be one of Luthor's trophy wives and decides to leave the ship. She and Clark are then confronted by South American terrorists who promptly throw Clark overboard. As the terrorists are trying to cordon the hostages, Clark changes to Superman and lifts the ship, which surprises everyone on board. This opens an opportunity for Lois to seize control and knock out the terrorists. Luther then reveals that he allowed the terrorists to get on board just so he could coax Superman to come and include him on his payroll. Superman refuses Luther's offer and is deputized by the mayor to arrest Luther, who is released less than two hours later due to, due to his legal team. A few days later, Luther confronts Superman and warns him of a day of reckoning. Superman's arch-nemesis Lex Luthor was no longer a mad scientist, but instead the new evil in the 1980s, a power-hungry businessman, the most powerful man in Metropolis, who resented Superman's overshadowing presence. Instead of battling Superman directly, Lex would hire minions and staff on his payroll, 
or manipulate others to confront Superman, while employing various methods to ensure none of the incidents could be conclusively linked to him. Clark mentions that it, it has been almost 18 months since he beat Lois on the, on the scoop on Superman. Issue 5. The story begins with Superman confronting Luther after foiling another of the latter's revenge schemes. However, Luther is able to elude arrest when Superman is unable to tie the villain to his criminal act. Superman leaves, but not before his body is scanned by Dr. Tang's cloning machine. Due to Superman's alien heritage, the machine is unable to duplicate his DNA as it can only recognize known life forms. At first, the clone appears to be a perfect duplicate of Superman until it keels over unconscious and its body begins to crystallize. Frustrated, Luther orders the body to be disposed of. Days later, the duplicate resurfaces thinking it is Superman and helping Metropolitans. The people, upon seeing it, flee in fear. It later meets a blind Lucy Lane, Lois's sister, who attempted to commit suicide by jumping off a building. Superman encounters the creature and engages it in battle. The fight ends in a final blow, shattering the imperfect duplicate into a dust cloud, which somehow restores Lucy's sight. On the opening page of this, is this issue, Superman is seemingly capturing Luther, who is wearing his pre-crisis power suit. However, the next page reveals that it is one of Luther's pawns in the suit. Luther claims that the suit had been stolen and that he had no knowledge of the plot to attack Superman. Unfortunately, the suit systems have left the man inside a vegetable, unable to tell the truth of Luther's involvement. The reader later learns that Luther was responsible for all of the above, which Superman suspects. The villain Bizarro was established as an imperfect clone of Superman, created from the superhero's DNA, rather than as a duplicate resulting from an imperfect duplicating ray. Furthermore, Bizarro is no longer an imperfect opposite of Superman and, as such, has identical rather than opposite powers. Though the duplicate is referred to as Bizarre in story, it is never explicitly named Bizarro. That name will not be established post-crisis until years later, when another imperfect duplicate created by the same process runs rampant in Metropolis. Lois mentions that she has been dreaming of kissing Superman for five years now, indicating that he has been active in Metropolis at least that long at this point. The restoration of Lucy's sight is an element borrowed from Bizarro's original debut in Superboy, Volume 1, Number 68, right down to the dust cloud. It's intimated that the duplicate deliberately sacrifices itself after hearing that Lucy's sight began to improve after contact with the creature. Issue number six. Clark returns to Smallville after a long time away. His adoptive parents pick him up. Jonathan Kent was about to tell him something, but Martha shush shushed him. Later that night, Clark could not sleep as he wonders what, his, what Pa Kent was, talk, was about to tell him. When he went for a midnight snack, a ghost of Jarrell surprises him and touches him. Clark discovers himself to be on an alien planet where he encounters his biological mother, Lara. As the hallucination wears off, he's face to face with his old flame, Lana Lang. In a flashback, it turns out that on the night that Clark learned his heritage, he went to Lana and revealed the truth of his powers to her. She confesses her feelings to him. She realizes that Clark can no longer belong to her, that he belongs to the world, and this fact had hurt her. She had gone through a period of depression before finally accepting that fact. 
The next day, Superman thinks about what she'd said and starts wondering about where he truly came from. He goes to the location where Jonathan hid the rocket ship he was found in, only to find that the ship is gone. The hologram of Jor-El reappears and tells him to be silent and to learn. It appears that Superman is under some kind of psionic attack, but the Kents arrive in time and break it off. Superman flies away, realizing that it was not a mental attack, but an upload of knowledge of everything about Krypton into his brain. He finally knows his biological parents and where he came from, and though he appreciates the knowledge he's been given, in the end, he embraces his humanity evermore. As opposed to earlier versions, where, where others such as Supergirl and, Crypt and Crypto also survive, Superman was portrayed as the sole survivor of Krypton's destruction. Superman had no memory of his existence on Krypton, but instead identified himself as a citizen of the Earth. Pre-crisis, Pete Ross knew of, of uh, Clark's abilities since they were teenagers, while Lana suspected Clark of being Superboy. Post-crisis, Pete learned, his, learned this information much later. Instead, Clark revealed his abilities to Lana just before he left Smallville, and while she retains feelings for him, has come to terms with the fact that they will nearly be friends and no longer pursues him as she did pre-crisis. Clark's adoptive parents are alive and well into his adulthood, and Clark visits them periodically. Pre-crisis, they had died shortly after Clark's high school graduation. Clark is 28 years old by the time the story ends, indicating that the six issues had taken place over 18 years. Okay. So, where to begin with my commentary? Well, for one thing, I should just put it out on Front Street that it, it's pretty hard for me to be objective about this series because I love it so much. I've read and owned copies of it for over three quarters of my life, and it informed not just my Superman collecting, but my perceptions of Superman for years. But... As much as, uh, as much as possible, I'm going to try to be objective here. That said, I seriously dig this version of Krypton. There's a school of thought that says Krypton should be more or less a futuristic version of the planet Earth, and through their own hubris, they became unintentional architects of their own destruction. Thus... The death of Krypton is a tragedy. But John Byrne went a different way by, as someone else said, and I honestly don't know who to, you know, who to attribute this to, but Byrne showed us a Krypton that kind of deserved to die. And if you read the World of Krypton miniseries that John Byrne did later on, you become even more convinced of that. This isn't a Buck Rogers version of Earth's future. It's a truly alien civilization with its own norms and customs. It feels truly different from Earth culture, and I cherish that. I also enjoy the aesthetics of it. The Kryptonian robes, their architecture, Kelex and the other robots, and basically everything about this iteration of Krypton. And then there's Clark as a football hero. 
This royally pissed off a lot of fans at the time, but it's not hard to see what Byrne was up to here. Anybody in Clark's position would contemplate or outright compete in sports. It's a small town in the Midwest, people. It, it's hard to believe that, actually, if anything, that Clark wouldn't do this, and harder, to, harder still to think that he wouldn't excel at it. It works for the character, and ultimately I'm okay with that because this was repudiated in the series. If this became a sort of a hallmark of the character, I'd understand the outrage, but this was, this was put on the page specifically so that Clark could turn his back on it. And on that basis, it works for me. Now, as to Superman's debut, it's obvious that Byrne made a priority of Clark's first public rescue being done in regular civvies. I understand the objections people have that Superman's first public appearance should be done in costume, always, without exception, forever. I totally understand that. But the scenario Byrne showed, intentionally or, un or unintentionally, underlies the man of the super. Take everything else away and you have Clark Kent. This version of the character is what it is. Clark Kent is Superman because he's Clark Kent and it works for me on that level. Other things. The symbol has no relation to Krypton. Some versions show the S emblem with a Kryptonian origin, and I guess I don't mind that, except it's not a long-standing part of Superman lore in the larger scheme of things. That's something that Richard Donner invented for Superman the movie. Now, in its place... I don't mind that, but it just bugs me when the symbol is shown with a connection to Krypton as a matter of almost religious obligation. People, that never entered the Superman lexicon until 1978. The convention prior to that point was that Jonathan and or Clark created the symbol. Like it or not, that's a completely valid way to handle the subject. Shit, it's probably more valid than any of the alternatives. And that brings us to something else. To me, there are three levels of interpretation here. You've got tradition, which is the way things have often been done, but it's not set in stone. And then there's canon, which is how things are usually done, but could be malleable if done properly. Finally, you've got mythos which are all the non-negotiable, unchangeable, immutable elements of Superman lore. Failure to recognize these never goes unpunished. Now, apart from that, then you get into Superman and Batman's relationship. For the purposes of getting into The Dark Knight Returns as a story, I can believe that they have an at-best tense relationship with, with, with each other. They came down on very different sides of a... When you, when you come right down to it, a pretty fucking serious difference of opinion. Their conflict in The Dark Knight Returns is... It's 
it's ideological. It's it's philosophical more than anything, and so I buy it there. I can also accept it as shown in Man of Steel because they know nothing about each other. It stands to reason that Superman would be turned off by Batman's methods and, dare I say, kind of weirded out by his standoffishness. Their conflict here is more methodical than anything, and so I buy it. But in general, I outright hate, 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 fucking hate the uneasy relationship between Superman and Batman. Superman has powers. Because of that, he has responsibilities. He can't go around scaring the shit out of everybody because he ultimately wants to be trusted and accepted by mankind. Superman's mere presence on Earth is potentially a completely fucking destabilizing influence, so Superman has to do his utmost and constantly be on guard, ready to prove to everybody that he's always and forever on his best behavior. If Batman doesn't understand that after 10 years of working with the guy, he's a fucking idiot. As a corollary, Batman has no powers. Because of that, he has very few rules. He can go around kicking the snot out of perps, violating their civil liberties left, right, and center, and doing as much as he can to create an atmosphere of paranoia in Gotham City everywhere he goes because Batman trades in fear. Bullets don't bounce off his chest, so his best choice is to do everything he can to make the Gotham City underworld paralyzed in fear of him. If Superman doesn't understand that after ten years of working with the guy, he's a fucking idiot. But writers and some fans have a serious boner for Superman and Batman not getting along and never seeing eye to eye, so this once kind of innovative idea has hung around long past its expiration date. To all fans out there, please fucking let go of this already because it diminishes both characters. Now, as ever, your hate mail can be sent to trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Now, apart from that, then you get into Lex Luthor, the billionaire. Part of me kind of likes it, but... Part of me is sick of seeing business leaders and entrepreneurs and the like being demonized in this society. Lex Luthor has become symptomatic of all of that. Usually the harshest critics of these captains of industry are people who won't... They're they're not going to accomplish as much in their entire lives as these industry captains do in one month. Yeah, I said it. Again... Your hate mail can be sent to trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But guys, it's fucking true. These days, I don't think the biggest threat to society is some industrialist or business owner. It's a terrorist with germ weapons or whatever else. If Lex is supposed to represent the fears and paranoias of whatever era he's in, I think terrorism is much more topical for him these days than being just another evil corporate titan. And that sort of leads into something else. Lex, as the billionaire tycoon, has become almost official dogma now. I'm sure now and then you get people like Mark Miller, Grant Morrison, or Brian Azzarello who can work within that model and make it amazing. But official dogma, it remains, and it just bothers me. That's all I'm saying. So, 
moving away from that, Bizarro, as a sort of mute beast, doesn't bother me. Especially since it didn't stick. The original Bizarro, in a sense, basically a post-crisis version of the original Bizarro was eventually brought into continuity, but I sort of like the idea of Bizarro as a sort of Frankenstein figure, but I gotta be honest, I happen to think the truly definitive version of this character hasn't been done yet, so all of this is to say I really got no opinion about it. I liked it, but whatever, I'm, I'm not really fixated on it one way or the other. So, Lana. Byrne has said that if he had the creative blank check people think he did, Lana would have replaced Lois as Clark's one true love. She's the one who grew up with him, saw him at his best, comforted him when he was at his worst, and stuck by him no matter what. Her entire life. Meanwhile, Lois has a crush on Superman. Now, I'm going to be honest, my, I guess, pro-Lana thing, it kind of ended once Smallville got underway. For better or worse, the Smallville version of Lana has really soured me on that character in a lot of ways. So, putting aside that bullshit, though, Byrne set Lana up as the girl who got her heart broken and then got left behind by basically everyone. She was a confidant for Clark and could be trusted with all of his most private secrets. She served a useful function, but even that got nullified once Clark clued Lois in on his secret, so eventually she lost even that. But Burns given her a lot of feeling and pathos, to the point where it's it's kind of hard not to empathize with her, and it's definitely a more interesting take on the character in some ways than the teenage version of Lana in the pre-crisis era. Although I happen to think that the grown-up versions of both are pretty evenly matched, at least in my opinion, so whatever that's worth. To take a look at the series as a whole... Among other things, Byrne attempted to synthesize what he thought were the most important elements of Superman's mythos and then, in turn, situate the presentation into a more, at least at the time, a more modern context. This was a decision that alienated a big portion of Superman fans and collectors who had spent decades following the, collect, uh, the uh, character. But it also created controversy and buzz in the industry. There was an interest there that otherwise might not have been. Comic book readers, who might normally never even dream of reading a Superman comic, suddenly became interested in to see what was coming. Now, Burns said that there was also some degree of backlash that occurred basically when this thing was announced before anybody even saw any of the work, which paralyzed DC's editorial apparatus, and this became the beginning of Byrne and DC coming into conflict with each other. That's as Byrne tells it, though. 
I've never read anything from Dick Giordano or anybody else for that matter who gave the other side of this story although I would like to mind you I don't know if Giordano ever discussed what went on behind closed doors um, in public or in interviews or anything like that before he passed away so this could be something that we just never know the full truth about but speaking only for myself I can at least admire what Byrne attempted to do in giving Superman a solid starting point. The old continuity had ended, and so Byrne was able to sort of plant the flag and say, here's where everything you need to know begins. So, one thing nobody can argue is that this series isn't influential. The Ruby Spears Superman cartoon, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and then Superman the Animated Series, all rely heavily on Man of Steel. Shit, even Smallville, which had a lot of pre-crisis content in it, still depended heavily on Man of Steel as well. More broadly, certain elements have become absolute canon to this day. Like I said, Lex Luthor is now a billionaire captain of, captain of industry, but there are other things. Lois Lane is a military brat. Smallville is located in Kansas. And no, Byrne didn't invent that, but he sure as shit codified it in comics. And there are other things too, but beyond all that stuff, Byrne also expanded upon what was possible in terms of the aesthetics of Superman. For over 20 years, Superman had more or less been Kurt Swan's Superman. Now, I have no gripe against Kurt Swan. As a matter of fact, to me, he's always going to be the definitive Superman artist. But there's nothing wrong with building upon Superman's artistic uh, vocabulary, I guess. And John Byrne has a very different line style from Swan. Byrne tended to draw Superman as leaner, trimmer, and less barrel-chested than Superman had been drawn before. He kept the traditional design elements of Superman's uniform. He kept those the same as what had come before, but he redesigned Superman's cape. And he also broadened the uh, S emblem on his chest so that it practically covered his entire chest. Now, Arguably, Alex Ross would take that to the next level, but my argument is that the big chest emblem thing started with Byrne. Any other analysis simply ignores the historical record. That's all I'm saying. So, in the end, I think the real question is whether or not all these changes and shit were actually worth it. And I tend to think they were. As I said... It gave Superman a firm beginning point, which was kind of a new thing in his history. The Golden Age Superman had sort of evolved and mutated into the Silver Age Superman, who then went on to become the Bronze Age Superman, but there really was no fixed point where you could ever say, this is where everything you need to know about Superman begins, you know? But Man of Steel gave us that. And you could argue we haven't had that since. We haven't gotten that ever again. In fact, I 
plan to argue that very thing in the very near future. So keep your ears peeled for that. But another thing was John Byrne's entire run on, on Superman showed that any character, no matter how old-fashioned he might be considered by some people, could be interesting and compelling in the right hands. Readers who might not touch a Superman comic book written by Carrie Bates, they may not have touched that with a 10-foot pole, but they were willing to give John Burns Superman a test drive, and a goodly number of them stuck around. There are some drawbacks, though. I think the concept of Superboy has a lot of juice to it, when it's done properly. But... Byrne deleted Superboy from Superman's history and I guess in the big scheme of things I think that came as a detriment to the character Byrne wanted to do stories about a rookie superhero learning the ropes and ultimately he wasn't allowed to do that he even publicly regretted it later as he said that Superboy would have filled that role nicely but DC wanted a Superman that was as Byrne himself put it up to speed by the end of, of the Man of Steel miniseries, and Byrne just eventually lost that battle. And of course, removing Superboy from the canon was always going to royally buttfuck the Legion of Superheroes, but Byrne pleads innocence even on that, as he says the Legion office told them they had Superboy's absence covered. Turns out they didn't. But... Nevertheless, that leads to removing the Legion from Clark's younger years, and I think that hurt the character in some ways. I'm, frankly, the Legion has never recovered from the loss of Superboy, but there are adventures to be had and stories to be told involving a teenage Clark, or Superboy, or whatever, that can really only be done in the context of the Legion. <clears throat> The Legion may need Superman more than Superman needs the Legion, but ultimately they all need each other to work at their best. Separating them hasn't completely been a benefit to either of them. Still, there comes a point when you have to acknowledge that people came for Burn, but stayed for Superman, so no matter what the weaknesses that I just outlined, whatever weaknesses there may have been, I still think this is an important thing to emphasize. Sales may have diminished somewhat after Byrne left, but I haven't seen anything to make me believe they'd gone so far as to return to the late pre-crisis levels. Maybe they did, but I haven't seen that claimed anywhere. Bottom line, Man of Steel is not only a worthy Superman origin story, but it stood up to the test of time, and that's just because it's a damn good story in its own right. I think that's that. So sit tight, I'm going to play some promos, and I'll be right back.
My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called News from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the Toy Geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punch's Reality, at 
www.magnus.libson.com. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind. And that's a promise. If you enjoyed the show, review it in iTunes. If you didn't enjoy the show, review it in iTunes. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promo can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is copyright Magnus Media Enterprises Limited, Wisconsin Falls, California. some disclaimers. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. Do not disturb. Do not laminate. Do not stamp. Do not drop. Do not place near any magnetic source. Do not incinerate. Do not use while operating a motor vehicle. Do not use while operating farm machinery. Do not use while operating heavy equipment. Do not use while sleeping. Do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Do not use if wrapper is punctured. Do not iron. Do not write below this line followed by big freaking long line, subject to change without notice, for educational purposes only. This podcast does not reflect the views of Magnus Media Enterprises Limited. All celebrity voices are impersonated. No celebrity ever has, or likely ever will, appear on this show or endorse any aspect of this show. Any similarity to real persons is void where prohibited. This side up. Listener assumes all liabilities, not liable for damages due to misuse. If condition persists, consult your physician. Apply only to an affected area. For internal use only. Subject to change without notice. Times are approximate. Simulated picture. Enlarged to show detail. Some assembly required. Many will enter, few will win. Batteries not included. Contents may settle during shipment. Use only as directed. Wash, rinse, and repeat. No other warranty expressed or implied. Postage will be paid by addressee. Subject to approval. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Use other side for additional listings. For recreational use only. All models are over the age of 18.